Welcome back to the History of the Barbarians podcast, episode 22, The Birth of the Visigoths. Now, I am in a different location this week, and the sound may be a bit wonky here, but we're going to go ahead and try and make this work because it's been quite a struggle the last couple of days here trying to get this episode up and running, having some equipment issues. So hopefully the sound's not too bad, and we'll see what we can do with editing, but let's move along. This week, we are going to look at the Rebellion of Alaric and his group of Goths in 395 CE, and how many historians mark this event as the birth of the people we would go on to call the Visigoths. Last time we spoke, Alaric and his people were called upon to fight with Theodosius and the Eastern Army against the Western Empire at the Battle of Phrygis. The first day of the battle saw Theodosius utilizing the Goths as shock troops in a risky frontal assault that reportedly cost 10,000 men or half of the forces that Alaric had brought to bear. The men that survived the slaughter certainly believed that the Eastern Roman Emperor was trying to weaken the Federati so as they would not be a threat after the victory. The idea that their lives were worth so little and thrown away so flippantly, despite the loyalty and bravery shown for Rome in the battle, incensed the Goths. Further throwing gasoline on the rebellious fight of our barbarians is the fact that they were held in northern Italy for months after the battle, playing bouncer to the area, even after the emperor had died in Milan in January of 395. This was so infuriating because word had come back to our troops that their homes were being raided by the Huns over the frozen Danube River that winter. So when the Goths finally were released by Stilicho, months after the death of Theodosius, they started back to their homes in Moesia. They did not have any supplies when they left for home, and feeling extra underappreciated and abused, they decided to plunder and steal all supplies that they would need. They made great haste and arrived in just a few weeks after a hard march back, only to find their homes destroyed, valuables taken, and the population of elderly, women, and children killed, abused, or taken away as slaves. This is when we get our rebellion against the Romans, and the Visigoths decide to carve out their own kingdom within Rome with the sword. The Visigoths would gather their people together and march towards Constantinople to threaten the stability of this newly combined Roman Empire. Alaric and his men had fought a devastating battle, hard march, and then uprooted what was left of their families from their homes to go on the march again, but could not lay siege to a city like Constantinople. Once again, the Goths' inability to lay siege to a large city, effectively at least, will hamper their plundering efforts. They will turn west and head into Macedonia and northern Greece to find food, riches, and opportunities to apply political pressure to the Roman Empire. Stilicho had taken an army into Illyricum that included a contention of Goths to confront Alaric and the Visigoths. Gainas was the commander of this group of Goths, and just as a reminder that this is the common-born Goth that we introduced last episode, was the commander of the noble-born Alaric under the forces of Theodosius at the Battle of Frigidus which caused much consternation for the young Alaric. Gainas, who had worked his way up based on his merits through the Roman military ranks, had been a rival of Alaric within the Roman army, who Alaric thought that he should have a high rank in the army as well. Gainas would become a key character in the story of Rome, both east and west, and in the Gothic army intrigues through this short period of time that our episode covers. 
Stilicho had been poised to attack Alaric and his Goths in northern Macedonia before Arcadius called back his Gothic mercenary troops to the Eastern Empire. The recalling of a good portion of Stilicho's forces meant that he could or would not face the Goths in battle and return to the west with his remaining forces, leaving the Goths to the Eastern Empire. The reason that Arcadius recalled these troops remains fairly unclear, but his key advisor Rufinus surely would have had an influence in the decision. It has been posited that the rivalry between Rufinus and Stilicho was the impetus for the move by Arcadius. Another reason for recalling the Eastern Empire's Gothic troops could have been because the Huns were spotted on the border region of Anatolia, and they would be needed to fight this new threat on a different outlying area of the empire. Either way, Gainus and the Goths were not pleased with this move and decided to show their displeasure. As they came back to Constantinople, they were received in a public ceremony by the imperial court where Rufinus, the Gaulish Praetorian prefect, and effective regent and ruler of Arcadius, was present. During the festivities, the Goths grabbed Rufinus and killed him on the spot, cutting off his arm, and there are some other gruesome descriptions uh, that can all be found in some of the sources. This very public and brutal assassination of a top official in the imperial court would send shockwaves throughout the empire, both in the east and west. The way the assassination occurred seems to be deeper than just upset mercenary Goths under Gainus showing their unhappiness by killing the man they blamed for the decision to remove them from Stilicho's service. Rufinus had for several years had an intense rivalry with Stilicho and the Empress Eudoxia and the high-ranking eunuch of the Eastern Empire, Eutropius. At least one of these people are probably responsible for the assassination of Rufinus by the Goths serving under Gainus upon their recall to Constantinople. The advisor's death did benefit all three of these individuals in their own way. Regardless, the recall of the Eastern troops under Gainus and the subsequent assassination of Rufinus by those troops forced Stilicho to allow Alaric out of a desperate situation once again. And the Visigoths would continue to raid on. Now the sources for this part of our story are extremely limited, but it is said that Argos advanced far enough south into Greece that they passed through Thermopylae towards Athens. As they moved south through Attica, they plundered smaller cities and grew their ranks by absorbing freed slaves of many backgrounds, including both Tervingai and Gruthungai Goths. The city of Thebes seems to be one of the few cities in central Greece to successfully hold out against the Goths, but Pyrrhus and many others fell. As the Athenians heard of the approach of the invading army, they decided to give up the city peacefully to avoid a long siege that would devastate the populace. And on November 27, 395, Alaric and his people entered the ancient city as celebrated guests. A lavish banquet was given in his honor, and the Athenians gave a large sum of gold to the Visigoths. Since the Athenians capitulated, they were spared harsh treatment, and this action would be repeated with any other city in Greece that was willing to pay the Goths in money, food, and slaves. The cities that did not pay would face a different fate. As the Visigoths moved south, they captured the city of Ulysses, where they destroyed the Temple of Demeter. This temple had held the famous mysteries of Ulysses, possibly for over a thousand years at this point. The mysteries were a series of secret religious ceremonial rites dedicated to the god Demeter from Greek mythology. They had served as a center of pagan pilgrims for centuries. This is an instant of 
the Goths destroying something that was held sacred for many, many of the pagans throughout the empire, which still had a large number of followers. Now, as the Goths were Aryans, they may have been motivated by their Christian bent, but typically they did not destroy like the Romans did. They did not necessarily burn cities to the ground and destroy whole cultures and enslave whole cultures uh, like the Romans had done many times before. But in this case, they certainly are guilty of destroying the mysteries of Ulysses. So through the year 396, Megara, Corinth, Argos, and Sparta would all feel the Goths' wrath. Much of the countryside would be destroyed. Some cities would be burnt, and many people would be taken as slaves. The Goths are still plotting the Peloponnesus when the Romans would finally make a move to put a stop to this rebellion. Silica would put together an army made up of Western soldiers, fresh recruits, and mercenaries, and then sail them to the land in the Peloponnesus in the Gulf of Corinth. Stilicho and Alaric would then spend months maneuvering around each other and not directly fighting large open battles all through 396. Neither side was willing to put its forces in a situation that would jeopardize the whole army, until Stilicho was able to encircle the Goths by outmaneuvering them on the plain of Foli in Elis. Stilicho built large earthen barriers to surround Alaric, and to put the screws to them, the Romans diverted a river to go around instead of through the trapped barbarians. Now, this is where our timeline becomes a bit foggy. But as the Visigoths began to run out of supplies and feel the effects of hunger and thirst, Stilicho allowed his men to roam around the countryside gathering food and supplies. While this is happening, Alaric is able to break out north and march 30 miles to safety before Stilicho is able to mobilize his troops after waiting several days for his men to come back from foraging and proceed with the chase. The Romans then followed the Goths north, either across the Gulf of Corinth or around on land to Epirus on the western coast of Greece. All while this is going on, several key events are happening outside of Greece that will have a massive impact. Another revolt flares up in North Africa, led by a man named Gildo. Stilicho is forced to return to Italy in order to deal with his rebellion in territory that is actually under the Western Empire's control, unlike his current involvement with the Goths in the Eastern-controlled Greece. Now, there is some debate about the events involved here. Herbert Wolfram, the eminent Goth historian, states that Stilicho had already started to retreat when Gildo had launched his rebellion, and therefore he hypothesizes that Stilicho had already started to work out a political solution with Alaric that would cause Alaric to stop fighting and settle down for the time being. Still yet, Stilicho had moved a Western army into obviously Eastern Empire territory, and Constantinople did not like this move. The Eastern Empire declared Stilicho an enemy of the empire, which could have contributed to the decision to remove himself from Greece also. So for our purposes, we can believe that either of these reasons work, but it is a fact that Stilicho moved his troops out of Greece and back to the Italian peninsula. So we see, once again, Alaric is trapped by Stilicho, now three times, yet the Goth and his people still manage to survive. Therefore, Alaric has 
unfettered access to all the lands of Greece, again for plundering. He takes his people north to Epirus on the western coast of Greece, as Stilicho is back in Italy dealing with the North African threat. The new chief advisor is the previously mentioned eunuch Eutropius, who was probably involved in the assassination of the previous chief advisor, Rufinus. He is currently trying to deal with the Hunnic incursions into Anatolia and Syria with the resources that he has on hand, meaning he could not use troops in the east to deal with the Goths in the western portion of his empire. He therefore must find another way to deal with the rebellious Goths in Greece. And in the year 397, he finds a political solution to his Gothic problem. Alaric had been requesting a military command from the Romans for years at this point, and even during his newest rebellion, still made overtures to any Roman official that would listen, that basically this whole thing could be settled if you would just give me a military command and my people some good land. And that is exactly what Eutropius gives him. Alaric becomes a high-ranking officer in the Roman army, and his troops become, effectively, Roman troops. They are now entitled to official supplies from the Roman military resource chain instead of having to worry about procuring items for themselves. They are given land in Illyricum, which we can speculate that Alaric was given the name Magister Militum per Illyricum, although we do not know exactly his title. Coincidentally, this is the same location that the Ostrogoths under Theodoric will be living in about 70 years from now in our story. So obviously, we will be revisiting the same exact spot later on in our season on the Goths. This now means that Alaric is the king of the Visigoths and a Roman general, making him a man that is much more powerful than any of the Federati that has come before him. Now, it may seem a bit strange that Silica would make such an effort to move an army to Greece to face the Visigoths, but not actually fight them, and then to leave so suddenly as well. Stilicho bid his leave because Gildo's rebellion in North Africa, possibly, which was the breadbasket of the West, and they had promised to shift their grain shipments from Rome to Constantinople. Eutropius in Constantinople had enticed Gildo into switching allegiances from the Western to the Eastern Empire. So Eutropius must have known that Stilicho would leave Greece and allow Alaric to roam free in the East once again. This is why he had to already have the plan in place to provide Alaric the items he needed to end the rebellion. Otherwise, the Goths would have had unfettered access throughout the Eastern Empire for years. It really is remarkable that the East and Western portions of the Empire played each other so skillfully and, and underhandedly throughout the latter stages of the Roman Empire. We see a nominally united empire constantly undermining each other and backstabbing each other and certainly would weaken themselves uh, to eventually be f taken down by a multitude of forces. Okay, so back to our narrative. Our Visigoths have found a way to improve their position in the empire through military and political moves which will mean they will be settled peacefully for the time being. This does not mean, though, that the Goths throughout the empire will be quiet and complacent with their standing. Over in Phrygia, in modern-day central Turkey, another Gothic group will be inspired by Alaric and his people's actions. 
Do you remember back a couple of episodes ago when like a fun guy reek named Odo Theus led his people across the Danube in 386? The Goth Alaric at the time was in charge of defending that Danubian border region and with the help of some Roman legions, killed Odotheus and captured his people to be resettled as colonized or resettled people and also as slaves. Well, as promised, those people are back into our narrative. They were taken to Phrygia, and after years of second-class citizen status, they decided that they are going to improve their lot just like the Visigoths. They found help in the form of leadership from a Gothic soldier in Roman employment named Tribigold who had made a name for himself fighting the Huns in Anatolia between 395 and 398, which he is given much credit for driving them back into their lands north of the Black Sea. Tribigold felt that his success against the Huns had merited a higher appointment within the Roman army than he currently possessed. He requested and was denied a higher rank within the Eastern Empire's armies by Eutropius. Therefore, in 399, Tribigild and his Grithungi Goths rebelled against Constantinople. Eutropius sent troops to put down the rebellion, but with varying degrees of success. At one point, rebels had been ambushed and trapped, but were able to bribe their way out of this predicament. In fact, the use of so many mercenaries or Goths in the Roman army seemed to have made it easy for Tribigild to gain support through bribery or persuasion. Enter Gainus, who will prove this point further. Eutropius then sent Gainus, who has been in our story for several episodes now, to put down this rebellious group of Goths. So, this Goth, Gainus, who at this point had never been anything but a loyal Roman servant, he did share, though, a certain disdain for the eunuch Eutropius, with many in the empire, I should say, as well, not just this rebellious Tribigild. And we need to point out here that this time period in the Roman Empire, especially in the East, has given rise to an anti-barbarian and anti-Gothic sentiment that will play a key role. And one could easily look at our story from the Roman perspective and see how the Goths were these ungrateful immigrants that were causing all kinds of trouble in the Empire and, tr- and ruining it. We've seen them plunder for decades now. Historically, they have been involved in all kinds of wars with the Roman Empire. They are supposed to be fighting for the Romans, but yet they continually rebel for various reasons. And so for the common Roman, it may be easy to start to think a certain way about the Goths. We know the story is so much more complicated than that, but even today, we see events can be interpreted in so many different ways, depending on perspective. Gainus then, in late 399, marches to Phrygia with an army of his Goths, and shortly after that, finds common ground with Tribigild, and they join forces. They then head back across the Bosporus to attack the European side of the Eastern Empire. Gainus attacks Constantinople and occupies the city with his Gothic army. Eutropius is executed by the end of 399, and Gainus is firmly in control of the capital. Now, it appears that things for the rebels begin to turn sour just as quickly as they rose. Tribigild is killed in Thrace, either during the march to Constantinople or while fighting Roman troops outside the city during the occupation. Gainus 
alienates the non-Aryan Christians in the cities with his religious policies, including trying to convert Catholic churches to Aryan churches. The whole time of Gainas rule in Constantinople, he keeps Arcadius and Eudoxia within the city. They are in fact able to stir up anti-Gothic sentiments using Gainas and his occupying troops as a centerpiece of this discord. During rioting in the city, we see various incidents happen that lead to the downfall of Gainas and his Goths. Aryan churches are attacked and burned, including one incident with Goths still inside. We see the Emperor's palace burned to the ground. Eventually, on July 12, 400, this anti-Gothic sentiment will be so strong that mobs in the city would attack the armed soldiers of Gainas. The Gothic leader would flee the city to half of the army that awaited just outside the walls, leaving the men inside to be killed in the riots. 7,000 Gothic soldiers are killed in the city, leaving Gainas at the head of a much smaller army that now held no political power and faced mounting obstacles to their rebellion. His next decision is to move his men back across the Bosporus and try to get back to Phrygia, where the Grithungi populace could support him. The Romans cut off access to boats this time across the narrow waters, so the rebelling soldiers attempted to make rafts to get across to the Asian side. It is at this point that another familiar goth comes back into our story, Fravana, the pagan goth who had killed the Christian goth Urful with his bare hands in front of Theodosius at a dinner way back in 391 CE. He was exiled for this killing of a fellow Goth and found comfort in the awaiting arms of Rome. In the intervening years, Fervada is able to work his way up through the Roman army, earning higher appointments and higher responsibilities. He at this time comes in with the Roman fleet and destroys this Gothic makeshift boat transfer, leaving Gainas without an army. The rebellious Goth is now in a position with very few options. He only has a handful of loyal men with him. No allies left, no boats, no army. So he decides to leave the empire and go to where the Goths had come from originally, Guthudia, north of the Danube. He escapes the empire and enters the old Gothic territory sometime in the year 400. Which this serves as a good reminder that yes, there are still Goths that live here, both Gruthungai and in the area that he enters, specifically Tervingai Goths. But the most dominant political and military force in the region has become the Huns. In particular, a Hunnic group led by a man named Olden. Olden decided that it would not be prudent to have a Gothic general, with his own small amount of troops, running around stirring up Goths under his rule, so he ambushed Gainas and his men, and capture the general. Olden then executes the refugee rebel and sends his head to Emperor Arcadius in Constantinople. So ends the rebellion of Gainas. It is a fun thought experiment here to explore the idea that perhaps Gainas and Alaric could have hooked up in Illyricum or somewhere in Thrace or Macedonia and combine their Gothic armies at some point. And this would have been a real power move for the barbarians and the immigrants that have entered the Roman Empire at this time. 
having Gainus firmly entrenched in Constantinople at one time, and Alaric having a fairly strong army in Illyricum, could have posed a major issue for the Eastern Roman Empire and eventually the Western Roman Empire. But let's move on to another character that deserves some attention. The Empress Eudoxia is a fascinating study. And we're going to give her a little bit of time now just to try to show exactly what this individual was capable of. Her full name was Aelia Eudoxia, the daughter of the Frankish general Balto, who we talked about in previous episodes as the Magister Militum for the Western Roman Empire. Eutropius, the eunuch, had set up a marriage to Arcadius, the son of Theodosius, when they were young. And her backstory before her marriage and before her effectively ruling the empire is really just as interesting as that time period. She was orphaned by the age of eight years old and was eventually raised in high-ranking families in Constantinople. And it's interesting to see a Western Empire high-ranking Frankish general's daughter, who had few connections in the East, would be able to rise to Empress. Eudoxia found a reliable ally in Eutropius early in her life, and both of their stars rose as he helped arrange her marriage at the age of 15 for her and 12-year-old Arcadius. She becomes a real force of nature as she comes of age, and not only influencing policy and rulings of the emperor, but by pushing for the eventual downfall and execution of her benefactor and the eunuch Eutropius in 399 when she's just 19 years old. Effectively, she ruled the empire for her emperor husband was very disinterested in the administrative skills and duties of the empire. She would have five children altogether with four surviving until adulthood. And with one of those being Theodosius II, who would take over after Arcadius dies in 408. And this is the Theodosius that built those famous walls in Constantinople that would stand the test of time and are still there today in some form and certainly would keep out many of Rome's enemies for a thousand years after they're built. Eudoxia, though, would die giving birth in 404 at the young age of 24 years old. A true force in ancient culture, cut down early by circumstances, not unlike uh, many others in non-modern societies. It would have been fascinating to give this woman more time, and deserving for sure, considering the amount of control she had at such a young age in the Roman Empire. But, alas, we must move on with our narrative. So, as we wrap up this episode, let's take a look at the current state of affairs for our barbarians. Gainus, the Gothic general, had risen so high in the Roman society that he essentially ruled, if not the empire, at least Constantinople for a short while in 400 CE. The Ostrogothic rebellion in Anatolia was started by a tribigild, joined by Gainus, and ultimately crushed by another goth named Fravada. And a Hunnic king named Ulden delivered the escaped Gainus' head to Constantinople after the latter sought refuge in the Hunnic-ruled Guthudia, north of the Danube. And all while that was going on, our Visigoths, who had rebelled in 395 to 397, are peacefully settled in their lands in Illyricum, 
and their king, Alaric, holds a high rank in the Roman army. So it's 401, and our Visigoths are about to get a little antsy, and they will be rising again for the umpteenth time to fight against Rome. And that is where we'll pick it up next time. Some of the sources that I used this week for our episode were Getica by Jordanus, Rome's Gothic Wars from the 3rd Century to Alaric by Michael Kulikowski, Historia Nova by Zosimus, The Goths by Herwig Wolfram, and The Story of the Goths by Henry Bradley. If you like this show, please give a review on iTunes, Google Play, or any platform of your choice. Check out the History of the Barbarians Twitter accounts and Facebook pages for more information, images, and maps about our barbarians and our story this week. And a big thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.